Hey everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction. My name's Alice, I'm an art historian and writer, and this is a podcast about the past through pop culture. Hopefully, if you're here, you already know that you can find the show on Twitter at History Friction, and you can find me there as well at AA Proctor. If you'd like to help us out, you can support the show on Patreon. It's really, really exciting and great that we have so many people who are willing to throw us a little bit of money and help us keep going and gradually become more professional. If you can't do that, that is also obviously absolutely fine, and thank you for listening. But if you feel like helping out in a non-financial way, you can tell your friends and do things like that. We're just very excited to have you here. This episode is actually the first in sort of a two-parter. You'll hear us talking about The Seventh Seal, and next week uh, we'll be talking about a film called Black Death, which covers very similar ground in a very, very different way. With that, I'm going to let you get on with the show. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell people what we're going to be talking about today? Uh, so my name is Sarah. I am an art historian working on medieval manuscripts, mostly scientific and medical manuscripts. And today we're going to be talking about the seventh seal. This was a really fun one to watch. So this episode and next week's episode kind of form a two-parter. We're going to be talking about the seventh seal. And then in the show that you'll hear next week, uh, we watched a film called The Black Death. And they make a really nice pair because they're two very, very different ways of looking at the history of um, European plague and the representation of the Black Death in popular culture. So The Seventh Seal uh, was made in 1957, and it's one of those films that shows up on all the sort of classic best of lists. I realised watching it for the show that I'd never actually seen the film the whole way through. I saw a lot of little bits of it as a kid because it's one of my dad's favourites. So it was actually really nice to watch the film for the show. What's your relationship with this movie? I mean, so I have a very, ironically, love this film very deeply. I watched it um, for the first time, like all of it, all the way through in high school when I was made to watch it uh, because I went to school in Sweden. Right. But before that, it's the thing that's kind of been on the TV all the time and it's uh, fairly regularly anyway. So watching this, I had the same sort of experience as I had the first time I watched Casablanca, where all of a sudden I just like clicked where all of these lines came from. Yeah. And all of these references. And it was it was like the final pieces of a puzzle came together for me. So re-watching it now uh, was also really fascinating because um, I enjoyed it so much more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. No, that makes total sense. And this is like, this film has been referenced so many times. Like it's so many of the scenes in it, watching this, you sort of clock where all these jokes and references and allusions come from. And so, yeah, it's, it's something that exists uh, within popular culture that's sort of bigger than itself. Should we talk through the synopsis of the film? The film follows the story of a knight. And essentially, it's kind of a sports film. It's a knight playing chess <laughs> with death. Um, and the whole of the story is framed through this chess game and the sort of journey over the space of about two or three days. Yeah, so it starts with Antonius Block, the knight, and his squire, uh, a guy called Jens, waking up at a rocky beach and the and Antonius immediately starts playing chess with death. 
And then that kind of frames the entire narrative of the film and they keep coming back to this chess game. They are on their way back to uh, Antonio's estate from having gone to war in the Holy Land. Uh, and they're both then disillusioned by this process. Uh, they turn up at a church where Jones goes to speak to the painter and the uh, knight goes to confession. But it turns out that the priest that he is talking to is actually death himself and he just like gives away his final move that's going to save him. Uh, but what's quite telling is that in the process of uh, talking to death, he and what when he thinks he's in confession, he says that he has one thing that he wants to do before he dies, and that is to commit one meaningful act. Yeah. So we meet this kind of quite funny, eclectic little cast of characters that do come from all walks of life. Um, the knight and the squire then meet a little troop of performers. Yoff and Mia are two of the sort of jugglers and acrobats that are with this little troop and their infant son. And they meet the uh, sort of the director of this little theatre troupe, although he disappears for a long time to go and have an affair with a blacksmith's wife. And they sort of pick up this really eclectic little band of characters as they go on their way. Meanwhile, Antonius keeps playing this chess game and his argument with death is that if he can win the game, he won't be killed, but he wants to do something uh, with his life before he dies. And so we sort of see these little snippets of people's lives as they come in and out of this little traveling traveling band. They also meet a woman who's going to be burnt at the stake for consorting with the devil. And Antonius tries to talk to her because as part of his crisis of faith, he wants to know if she's actually met the devil and if he can to see the devil so that he can find out sort of if God exists, if there is an afterlife waiting for him. That woman is then burnt, um, but Antonius sort of helps her by giving her some kind of drugs that mean that she isn't in pain while she dies. And eventually they do make it to his wife's castle, the castle and meet up with his wife. This is a very, very condensed plot of the film, but we're sort of on this journey with the characters and seeing these little vignettes as they meet different people. And running through the background of all of this is the kind of threat of the plague, which has apparently ravaged the coast and is moving inland. And so the characters are trying to avoid that and move around it. And we see these little snippets of conversation about uh, people's fear of death, what they think the plague means, where they think it's come from. Yes. And there's also um, at one point when they're in the small town and it's just about the time when the two groups of characters meet there is a group of flagellants that comes through and mm. it's which i think is a very interesting example of different people interacting with the threat of plague uh, in different ways that happens just as there is in the middle of a performance uh, by by me and joff and then these uh, flagellants come through and everyone just stops what they're doing until they've Along. We're definitely going to talk about the representation of that sort of penitent um, Christianity in a lot more detail. I found that uh, really striking because of the way that they interrupt the performance and that it is at this kind of moment of like very demonstrative faith that the two groups meet. And it, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting little scene. From there, the characters travel through a forest and Scat, the director of the theatre troupe, is killed. Um, he fakes his own death and then death comes for him. And whilst 
uh, Antonius and Death are playing chess, Joff and Mia and their child are able to escape. And so this seems to be the sort of meaningful act that Antonius has has carried out. He's enabled this young family to survive, to go on with their lives, and they make it out of the forest and live uh, when all the other characters, when they arrive at the castle, are met by death and they all die together. So there is one encounter with a character who does have the plague very, very briefly in the film, but it's mostly something that takes place off stage. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how the sort of representation of the plague in pop culture is a part of this film because we talk they, they talk about it a lot, but we do only get this very small glimpse of it. It's not the standard sort of modern representation of like bodies in the street and people dropping dead. Yeah, there is not a single scene of a rat scurrying across uh, yes. the landscape, which is <laughs> which is a sort of standard thing, I think. When whenever you have a film that's set in like the, during the Black Death, that you have I don't know like some sort of ironic. Uh, twist that you see the you see the rat you know what it's there for but the yeah. poor medieval uh, people had no clue but yeah I'm really I'm really glad that there is not a single rat that kind of shows us what uh, what's actually going on <laughs> they never say this is this is the plague uh, what you will think of as Yersenia pestis after the mid nineteenth century which I think is kind of mm. often implied in other films about plague. Mm. So it could just be any sort of ailment, which I quite like. Yeah, me, me too. So this is, I think this is one of the most interesting things about the film is that it's made in the 1950s. It's sort of set vaguely in the 14th century. We have this sense kind of from our own cultural understanding that the bubonic plague, the Black Death, is sort of ravaging Europe at the time. But it's treated in this very, very vague way. It kind of haunts the characters, but... We only see the death of one man. We see the painter in the church painting a representation of how people die from this plague. And we hear a lot of people talking about it and sort of whether they're afraid or not, whether they think it's their fault or not, sort of is this a curse that's come upon them kind of thing. But the way that it's not shown is so much more kind of haunting and effective than, yeah, as you're saying, the classic sort of like, ah, it's a rat. We all know what's going on, but these silly peasants don't have a clue. I think it's just very rare to see a representation of kind of medieval history. And we can get into what that term even means um, in a more subtle way. There's a lot about this film that isn't subtle, but the treatment of death is actually really, really interesting. Yeah, I feel like this is a very, this is a depiction of medieval Europe that is very deeply indebted to the writings of Johan Hersinger and like Barbara Tuckman who really presented the 14th century, especially as this time of deep like turmoil and strife. And uh, there's this uh, dichotomy presented between the knight who's noble and spiritual, and he has these like gentle conversations with Mia. Uh, he has these conversations with God. He's the one who interacts with death. And then there's also the more bawdy, earthy, ribald uh, representation of medieval culture that he's seen in his squire in, in Jens, mm. who has relationships with women, who is joking, who fights. And the, this um, dichotomy, I think, is fairly common for how medieval Europe was understood at the time, that these are the 
the two extremes. Yeah. And that's, it's so interesting because that does really come across in the way that these two men interact with women in particular. And I think there's actually something kind of interesting, like, yes, we have Antonius and, and Jons as the kind of knight and squire being sort of like spiritual and earthly, but we also have the presence of, of Joff as this sort of in-between where he's like, he's very dreamy, he has visions, he is kind of quite gentle doesn't have the sort of status and power that would enable him to be a sort of spiritual man like the knight is, but is sort of too fragile for the the earthy world like the squire. And so he is this quite interesting sort of bridge between the two of them, I think. There is a kind of tension between like the people who are concerned with a life after death, the people who are concerned with like a spiritual life, and the people who are concerned very much with like living and existing. And that is something that absolutely comes through in sort of 20th century understandings of the 14th century. And even now, I think a lot of historians fall into this kind of dichotomy where we we see this kind of fixation on like spiritual or earthly. It's very, it's very Kenneth Clark sort of understanding of European history. Yes. And I think, you know, Kenneth Clark very much grew out of that um, Huizinga, like the very kind of limited or, well, it was of its time and it served a purpose yeah. at that time, but it's just very, um, we tend to have a much more nuanced view of how people behaved and lived and related to things in the 14th century now. Among other things that like we're very aware now that women had spiritual lives and women had, mm. um, you know, their own ways of interacting with um, the divine and with the everyday and all of the women in this, like all four of them, are either, you know, representations of the Virgin Mary, you know, some um, trollop who leads good men astray, a, mm-hmm. a mute woman who, like, only speaks um, to proclaim, like, biblical sentiments, and uh, the wife of Antonius. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. They're... And they're very, very simplistic representations, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the mother, the whore, the good wife, and the sort of mute, pliable serving girl. And none of them have any sort of interiority to them at all. And I think that kind of casual misogyny, <laughs> uh, it really runs through the film. And, you know, this is a film about men and their feelings. Um, and it's unusual and rare to have a film that's about men and their feelings. And, you know, it has value. Uh, but it does also mean that we have these very two-dimensional women. Yeah. And I mean, I think, like, the men are also quite, like, two-dimensional. They're also sort of stand-ins for greater ideals and archetypes. But it's just that the, arch- the female archetypes are even flatter than the men. Absolutely. And one of the things that really struck me watching this is how much the different types of characters do really fit into like a history of theatre that's drawing on things like morality plays or commedia dell'arte where all of the characters sort of fit their tropes and do their things and they have their sort of defining feature and you have you know the knight the squire the blacksmith the jester and I I find that really um to be I think one of the strengths of the film is that it is this almost reenactment of historical theatre. You know, it's made in the 1950s, but the structure of it, the sort of simplicity of the characters and their desires does remind me a lot of 
historical drama in a way that I find quite compelling. Yeah, but did you know that um, uh, Bergman, when he made this film, was incredibly inspired by medieval wall paintings? And that uh, the uh, the artist that we meet in the beginning, Albertus Pictor, is actually a real person. So I wanted to ask about this because the sort of styling of it and the look of the film is very, very stagey, but in a way that does like, yeah, you have these framings and little quite intense interactions that do remind me a lot of like frescoes and murals and sacred art. And I find that really again, to be one of the strengths of the film is that even if it's not necessarily super, super accurate in all of its details, it has this sort of atmosphere to it, which is really compelling. So yeah, can you tell us more about Albertus Pictor and the art that's being referenced here? So, um, well, the film was first called, was first a play that he wrote uh, called The Wall Painting. And Albertus Pictor uh, was a, well, a, a church painter in active in mm. and around Stockholm in a fairly large area. He dies in 1509, but before that he is originally from Germany, but he moved to Sweden to take over the workshop of another artist by marrying his wife, as as these things often go. <laughs> of course. Yeah, well... <laughs> How else would you get a job? I mean, really? <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, it's quite a common uh, practice and also is one of those examples of where um, we have all these churches that we ascribe to Albertus Pictor, but it is, you know, we should be talking about Albertus Pictor's uh, workshop, and that would probably include his wife. Oh. He moves to Stockholm to get married to her, to take over the workshop. In that meantime, she probably ran that workshop herself. We have examples of um, her appearing in court to represent him, and there's okay. also examples of um, uh, churches being painted the same year that as both of them by uh, this workshop. And because the summers are fairly short in Sweden, uh, we know that if something is painted this year, it's painted during the summer because you can't really do these right. things in the winter because it's too dark and too cold and just too grim. So who, who would have been overseeing that work? Like, it's possible that... You know, he would have been at one church and she would have been at another or, you know, like a high up apprentice or someone else or someone working with them. But because right. of what we know about medieval workshop practices, uh, it is quite common that husband and wife work very closely together. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not holding this against uh, Ingmar Bergman, like that he didn't accurately depict a husband and wife pair um in this <laughs> in this film like that's fine i don't think this research was really like fully carried out in 57 um but in his wall paintings we see a bunch of motifs that crop up in this film he drew mostly from a a, a text or like an image series called the biblia Purpurum, uh the bible for the paupers like mm-hmm. poor in spirit rather than poor people and uh, right and uh that contains lots of depictions and he also has these scenes of death that he's really fond of and one of those is from Terbi Shirke and that is uh, 
man playing chess with death. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when I when I looked up the film, it's it's a really beautiful and really um, strange painting, and it's actually like explicitly referenced as well by the knight who at the beginning says to death, like, "Do you play chess?" And death's surprised that he knows, and he says, "Oh, I've seen you in paintings and folk songs." So there is this kind of like meta narrative of the art that's going on around it. Yeah. Yeah, and then we meet. Uh, the artist. So I feel like Bowman really wanted us to know where he was getting his references. But there is m- definitely there is more as well. And so the scene where the leader of the troop uh, dies, he like fakes his own death, and then he climbs up in a tree and does a little monologue about how he's, you know, this is really fine. He's just going to find his pals in the morning, and then he hears someone digging down the tree, cutting down the tree below him, and that is death. And that is also another depiction of uh, that often crops up in these uh, church paintings, which is um, a man climbing in a tree and death cutting it down from below him. Right. Okay. I didn't know about that motif. That's so interesting. And that is one of the most striking sort of scenes in the film. He's holding onto this tree and he talks about how he's going to climb up it to protect himself. And then he tries to sort of bargain with death about whether he can come down or not and death just keeps very calmly soaring away at the tree and when it falls down a little squirrel hops onto the stump and there's this quite like funny you know the one rodent in the film is this little (laughs) squirrel (laughs) it's this quite funny little motif of like life goes on the forest is still here we've cut down one tree but things continue and yeah i didn't i didn't realize that the man in the tree was also one of these these motifs yeah and it's uh in at the time it meant it was more about how you know death can come at any moment and you think you're safe Mm -hmm. and but so that's another common one and the third one is the dance macabre and the dance of death where death or a skeletal figure uh, leads uh, people of all social classes on a dance and that's like leads them away and painter is painting that in the beginning and then the very very last scene is death leading the knight and his squire and everyone in the household in a dance across the across this ridge in the landscape which is probably one of the most famous frames in the film and one of the ones that's been parodied and sort of referenced the most but that image of the dance of death and the idea that all of these characters from different walks of life are shown being led by death is a really frequently occurring motif of of this idea that it is inescapable and everyone will uh, everyone will die and, and it brings out the sense of people being equal in death as well which is not you know whatever status you have in life everyone is made equal by death and so you have in the paintings you usually have some kind of very powerful figure or like a monarch or something like that and you have the young and the old and sort of beautiful and ugly rich and poor sort of this idea that death is an equalizer which works with the whole cast of characters that have been picked up along the way and so at the very end we see Joff and Mia watching them dance over the hill but Mia can't see them and she thinks he's just having a vision. That scene is not actually played out by the actors. All the actors had gone home so they had to but because it, and they had to shoot and they only had a couple of hours or like they only had a very little time so they had uh, some of the uh, crew and some passing tourists uh, <laughs> that's amazing I love the idea of just being like a tourist going on like a walk in the countryside and being like roped into this weird little <laughs> that's so great so one of the things that 
comes out in this kind of representation of kind of emotional accuracy of the film rather than historical accuracy that that it picks up on all these motifs and references and tropes and things like that is color like this is a black and white film but it's very very vibrant in a way yeah i think they i think they work really well and um, work really hard to convey that the middle ages was quite um colorful and so one of the things that I found quite striking was the use of like the the jugglers' outfits and the acrobats' outfits. Like mm-hmm. they have such richly cut painted faces. They have to dress their hats on. And they're wearing party coloured hose. So you can tell that you know this is a black and white film. So one leg is white and one leg is black. But it gets convey conveys a sense of colour and not just just grey and dire and grim. Absolutely and. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of pattern in the film as well. We have obviously the paintings being made in the church, but we do also have all of the sort of hangings and textiles of the wagon that the performers are traveling in. We have this kind of like quite vibrant textural sense of the landscape as well, and it's impressive to me. So many films that represent like 13th, 14th, 15th century really lean into either the kind of very, very gaudy representation or everything is brown and grey. And this film, despite being in black and white, seems to have much more vitality to it than so many more recent representations of this era. Yeah, and just it's even when it's dark it's so clear that they filmed it during the day uh, and that it's light yes. because they have to say things like you know we're, we're traveling through the darkness now and i'm like this is fine i would much rather watch that than have to just have to turn the light up on my screen just to see what's happening and that's i think where it reminds me of the sort of staginess of it you know that even though this is filmed on location for the most part you know they are filming in a forest we do have the characters sort of remind us that it's nighttime, remind us that there's a storm, and it is really like watching a play, the sort of suspension of disbelief about the fact that, like, well, apparently it's the middle of the night, but we can see everyone's face perfectly clearly that comes with this is really nice, and I guess it's refreshing compared to the sort of unbelievable darkness of most films that get made now. (laughs) Yeah, but I think as well, especially films that are set in the 14th century, that it's either everything is either like really grimy and dark mm-hmm. and there it, it reminds me of this time and so Alberta's picture died in 1509 so like mm-hmm. on the for the 500th anniversary there was an exhibition in Stockholm and that took my grand to see it and there was these um it was really nice and th- they recreated a bunch of the wall paintings that he made and they had a a display case with a bunch of examples of different types of pigments that had been used Mm. in this and they were just showing off like what they were and my gran said to me oh man look at that imagine they had all of those colors back then (laughs) and it was it's just a thing that has struck with me since then because like of course they had colors but because so much of medieval wall paintings have been lost or they have been mm. um you know the the color has dulled over the years they've been painted over and what we see is fragments and things that have been a- we've been able to restore and what we see on fabrics they've also you know they don't survive for ages and even the yeah. things that are the best taken care of they still their the color really like dims with time um so so I think it's a combination of that and then 
um, her idea that everything in the past was just 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 miserable and grim means that when we think of medieval art and we think about the Middle Ages in general, even things like, you know, a green lush forest or a meadow will in our kind of collective imagination just seem duller and more um, like without luster. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting to me because often the pieces that we do have surviving, you know, they are oil paint or tempura paint. And so they're these very colorful um, images that are mostly from churches or sacred art and that sort of thing. But possibly this is the limits of my own sort of knowledge and experience. They tend to be, or the pieces that tend to be shown in galleries and museums, or at least that I'm most familiar with, tend to be um, from Southern Europe. And so there is this very strong sense that sort of everything north of like the middle of France is grey and brown. <laughs> yeah, and a part of that is like the climate. So if you had something, yeah. if you had a wall painting in a church in Sweden, like it's less likely to survive um, than it is in Italy. Um, the yeah. reason we have so many of the Albertus Pictor paintings survive is because in the 18th century they were all uh, painted over with uh, chalk, uh, with white mm. chalk colour, just for like a fashion, it became fashionable to have churches like that and not through like right. iconoclasm. And so they were uh-huh. painted over and then people sort of kind of found them again and they were able to chip away at the paint and it came away. And so that's why they survive. Um, mm. the, the best sources for colour and for the pic- for art from medieval art in general comes from manuscripts and the reasons yes. they survive is because and they survive so intact is because they are books and they're closed so they're not exposed mm-hmm. to light and if they're protected from changes in humidity and temp- changes in temperature then they can live for like a very long time. And I wonder how this feeds into the kind of dichotomy that we have in popular imagination between the sort of like the wealthy and the sacred and the sort of base and poor and earthy and that the things that do survive tend to have this kind of like connotation of luxury because it's a manuscript because it's a panel painting or something like that and so there is this kind of broad cultural misunderstanding that says you know if you were rich things were colorful (laughs) and if you weren't (laughs) everything is sepia yeah yeah i think that's definitely part of it or part of the reason where that comes from I mean, there, you know, there were rules and legislation about what people were allowed to wear and who could, were allowed to wear what colour, and obviously colour costs, mm-hmm. they cost, they cost a lot of money to dye things. There's a lot of this, um, these rules about what you're allowed to wear is getting, are getting reissued every few years, implying that people aren't really following them. Right, of course. And this, I mean, this came up in the episode that we recorded about uh, Dangerous Beauty, which is 16th century Italy, but we were talking about the sort of dress codes and like the laws about how you dress and people are constantly being fined for it. And the fact that we have so much information about it is because people are constantly breaking these rules. (laughs) And so, yeah, there is this, there is this sense in which like, just because that's the sort of assumed protocol and things like that you know there there is always going to be some flexibility and freedom within it so one of the things that we sort of touched on and that i'd really like to come back to is the flagellants and the way that this parade of penitents come through the town whilst the performers are putting on their little farcical gesture show um there's a group of people who are self-flagellating there are a lot of people wailing people carrying massive crosses it's a very I want to say kind of classic, straightforward depiction of 14th century European religion. It's the kind of trope that we see come up again and again. And I don't know how much of that is to do with 
this film being one of the kind of roots of a lot of the most prominent tropes of, of 14th century cultural media. But how, <laughs> not to sound very simplistic, but like how true is this and how sort of real is this kind of representation? Well, there were no flagellant movements in Sweden at this period. Okay. So... Right. That is, is, you know, like, I don't I don't care about historical accuracy. So that's not, like, super relevant, I think. But, yeah, so... Completely. Uh, but it's definitely a very compelling image. Um, yeah. And I don't know if it comes from this film or if it has been a compelling image before that. Flagellant movements predate the play, and they're often responses to other things. So I think the first one was in Italy in the 13th century. And in that case, it was a response to a very, very poor harvest. The, the general idea is that if God is punishing you for something, then you atone for that by beating your own flesh. And there is right. a biblical sort of precedence for this. It's not just completely made up, but it is... But yeah, so it predates the plague, but then it came really f became really famous because in following the Black Death, when people were trying to figure out what was happening, a group of men in like the Low Countries, uh, like created a flagellant movement and like traveled through towns and they beat themselves. So I read a description of it, and they were in, and this is they arrived in England in thirteen forty nine, and the. And what they do is, well, or did rather, is that they wore um, linen clothes, like, or linen sort of um, skirt, and they were naked on, on the top part of the body, and they were hood with a red painted cross on it. Uh, they all had whips with a little nail, uh, or like a knot at the end with a nail or something sharp inside of it. Ew. Yeah, and then they would hit themselves. Uh, three of them would chant and then the other ones would respond as if as part of the liturgy. They would hit themselves okay. and then move along and then like they would all lie down on the ground and with their arms stretched out as if on a cross and then the first ones at the very back of the procession would get up and walk across the other ones, hitting them as they walked, get to the front oh, and th yikes. they would sort of do that. I think they did that three times and then they would sort of progress through cities and wherever okay so it wasn't in indigenous to england it arrived here from the low countries but a lot of people right. wrote about it in and because they traveled we have lots of kind of chronicles describing this it wasn't a very mm. massive movement uh it wasn't the most kind of popular uh, response to the plague but i think because it was so striking even at the time it's a highly visible one yeah even if it's not that widespread yeah that makes total sense and i think for people um you know victorian historians afterwards and everyone writing about it you know it's something if you come across it it's something that you remember and it's something that you want to talk about because it's really weird and different. Yeah, absolutely. It's bizarre and it's so it's so striking and like the descriptions of it and the way that we see it in pop culture, like it makes total sense. It's very kind of compelling. It's very it's it's just very very striking and it's absolutely fucking awful. <laughs> and like the description of it is just so viscerally horrifying that like yes, of course it shows up in every chronicle and everyone writes about it and it, it has this sort of life that's 
bigger than itself. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I think Ingmar Bergman does really well. Like, he, like, does... It's a very, like, vibes-heavy film, and uh, the, like, the flagellant vibes are very strong, and, like, the kind of plague Mm -hmm. ideals are... Or plague ideals are really played out in a a film that's a, a meditation about death and what's the meaning of life and how you interact with that. Having people doing this to their own bodies and having the town that where they kind of come into it or the the visit or the the viewers that see them having them respond the way they do by sort of staring at them and then praying and then like I think that's quite striking as well. It's not people people aren't tired of it. They're still like they know what's going on, but they're still like surprised and absolutely reacting emotionally and that's- to it. That's something that I think this film does so, so well. You have these incredible lingering shots on people's faces, um, especially during this this scene of flagellation. Like The camera actually spends most time on the crowd of people watching rather than on the flagellants themselves. And so we get these close-ups of people's faces as they cry or sort of gasp or react with shock. And one of the, one of the things that I always think about in any kind of historical fiction drama is the faces of people in that film and like this my biggest complaint is always that people with very modern faces get cast in costume dramas and they look completely wrong for it everyone in this film has such incredible face like everyone looks incredibly real like the ruggedness and the sort of angles and things like that and i think part of that is to do with the fact that it's filmed in black and white and so you have this very high contrast and the sort of lighting and shadows on people's faces but honestly like the actor who plays death the actor who plays the knight they all have these really striking looks and so you get these very lingering shots on people's faces and watch their expressions change and it's it's very beautiful yeah the only exceptions i would say to that is that the two beautiful women in this uh so like the two sort of main characters who are supposed to be beautiful and that is mia and uh, lisa slash kunigunda who is the um, blacksmith's wife who both have very, very 1950s eyebrows, like very, very thin eyebrows. And they (laughs) are both, as opposed to every other female character in this, they have like these little short-sleeved jack, like tops on that sort of looks like something that you'd see in like Oktoberfest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because... Yeah, everyone else has the sort of full treatment of like lots of layers and lumpy clothing and things like that. And then the two of them get these like sexy little slip dresses and they have their makeup done. You know, you can see that they've had their faces done. And and even the the knight's wife actually at the end has quite pronounced eyeliner. <laughs> yeah, they, they're such 1950s actress faces and that is so so funny to me looking at the three of them and it's the equivalent of like casting you know people with instagram face in films today yeah but i wonder if that was noticeable to people at the time or if that was just like this is just a neutral beautiful face this is just how women look yeah i i I do wonder about that especially their hair i think mia's hair is kind of slicked back and and long and quite beautiful and it doesn't really have any kind of like there's no effort made to sort of make that 
particularly accurate or particularly sort of of its time. But like, does that matter to people? I don't, I don't know. I don't particularly care. But it is very interesting to me to see this sort of like 1950s version of 1340s and, and where the kind of limits of accuracy are for Bergman and for the actors in making this film. Yeah, I think there is a lot more flexibility in making uh, male actors seem like a personification of death, for example, or like as the noble knight, and there's no, and there's less. Uh, it's less important that they are beautiful, but with the women, mm. that is, you know, as with all of these things, it's always women have to be beautiful before all else. Absolutely, and I mean that's something that I found very striking about. Black Death, the other film that we watched, um, which we'll get onto in the next episode, but that, uh, yeah, as always, there's this really strong emphasis on, like, men looking sort of rugged and hardened, and all of the women just look blankly the same. (laughs) One of the things that I really wanted to talk about is part of this sort of understanding of source material interpreted in a very kind of flexible and artistic way. I wanted to talk about Mia and Joff, and particularly Joff's visions, and how they kind of play out for the audience that that he has this very different view of the world to the people around him and he is kind of you know he's sort of the artist of the film and the the use of particularly them as this kind of like young family traveling and i think the motif of like the holy family fleeing from death is something that's really strong in this film yeah i think his visions are really fascinating because they play out in so he has three visions in the film and the very first one he is in the beginning and he sees a a, a woman teaching a small child to work to walk and then Mia comes out and he tells her that he's just had a vision of the Virgin Mary teaching the Christ child to walk and she like sort of laughs at him and his visions and isn't he ridiculous and gently mocks him and then uh, later on in the film, um, you know, she mocks him. She kind of talks to him again about his visions, um, but they're not. They don't really crop up again until uh, he sees the knight playing chess with death, and uh, Mia looks over to him, and she sees the knight sitting by a chessboard, which has to be like a really boring game of solitaire if you're doing it on your own. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but she sees the knight sitting by the chessboard, and he's playing, and and he's, but Joff is the one who sees uh, death, and then they make the decision to run, um, mm-hmm. which kind of shows that Mia has like some faith in his, um, visions anyway. It's not just yeah, like she believes in them even though she gently mocks them. And, yes. and his final vision is at the very end where he sees um, the the dancers uh, being led across the hilltop by death. I really appreciate like the way Bergman uses medieval source material in this like very flexible and sort of malleable way. So I don't know how obvious this is to people outside of Sweden, but Mia is a, sh- a very common way to shorten Maria. Right. And, and Joff is obviously a way of shortening Joseph. It's not a common nickname, whereas Mia is a very common nick, nick, nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it wasn't obvious to me, but then as soon as you pointed it out when we were talking, like in your notes, it was like, oh, obviously, this makes total sense. So I think to contemporary audiences, that would have been a very, very obvious thing. Um, but I I really appreciate how like there are all of these little 
references that he uses Christian mythology and uh, visual iconography and um, even the the first and only and last line um, that the mute servant girl says uh, when she says it is complete or it's finished is uh, supposed is God is Jesus's final words in according to the Gospel of John uh, when mm. he's at Golgotha. So it's all of these sort of references. Um, he's setting this film in the Middle Ages, but he's also using the same kind of reference material that uh, people of that time cared about. And I think that yeah. makes it quite an interesting film. Yeah, and I mean, we should mention that the even the title of the film, the idea of the seventh seal, comes from the book of Revelation, and it's this idea of the end times. And the same passage about the opening of the seventh seal frames the beginning and the end, that the knight is sort of reciting it when he's on the beach, and then at the end, um, his wife is reading it as they eat. And there is this uh, sort of framing of the whole film in the language of kind of apocalypse really um in a way that's very striking and and stands out i think to a modern audience but i assume would also be very like potent for an audience at the time that this film comes out yeah i definitely agree the framing of the film using that quote uh from the book of revelation it makes it kind of jarring i think and it really well in a in a good way but it really positions you within this um completely different landscape uh, emotional landscape mm. as well as um like temporal landscape where where everything is so different and that's the you know there's plague happening but it's it's just everything is just like death is sort of ever present and i think that's actually one of the ways that this film is most effective is that it's framed in this kind of language of revelation language of apocalypse language of end times but ultimately it's also very intimate you know we're talking about the end of the world and this kind of judgment day, but it's not global. We have people talking about how this must be the last day, this is the end, this is like the final day. But it's also very clear that like life goes on. Joff and Mia and their child move on, they keep traveling. And so even though it is the kind of like the final judgment for some people, it, there is this sense of continuity. Yeah, and I think to also to frame it as this is the the one good deed or the ma- one meaningful deed mm-hmm. that he was able to create in his lifetime was to save the life of this small family. There's something really beautiful and lovely about that. Yeah, it's gorgeous, especially when, you know, you compare it to him talking about his time fighting in the Crusades and the sense that he's been kind of trying to fight this holy war as a way of understanding his place in the world and things like that and that the one good thing that he does and really practically the only time he smiles in the film is when the knight watches them escape over death's shoulder and sees them sort of getting away and sweeps all the pieces off the board as a distraction and 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 helps them in this really gentle and, and beautiful way it, it it's for a film that's all about death and where like death is arguably one of the main characters it's strangely joyful yeah no, I think um, it, it ends on, yeah. and to have a film end uh, with, you know, all the main characters dancing across the, across the stage with, um, you know, led on by death, to make that uh, a positive and beautiful ending is something uh, quite impressive. Definitely. I think this film is, is very beautiful and very 
kind of strangely moving and emotive in a way that I didn't expect. You know, it's it's very of its time in its representation of the 14th century, and it's very simplistic in a lot of ways, but it does have this kind of rich emotional life to it that I find, yeah, very, very beautiful. <laughs> Which brings us on to the other film that we're going to watch. Do you have anything to sort of wrap up with The Seventh Seal before we head on to The Black Death? Just to implore everyone to go and watch it themselves and probably, yeah. you know, should have done that before listening to this, but yeah, you won't, it won't ruin it for you. It's uh, You'll still enjoy it. But yeah, just just watch it. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, I, I watched it on YouTube. I had to watch it in 10, 10 minute increments because the video kept buffering, but you can find it on YouTube. You can find it online. It's pretty easy to get hold of and it is very worth watching. I hope no listeners to this show are put off by things like subtitles or black and white. If you are, you're probably in the wrong place. Um, so you should definitely watch this film. It's it's really beautiful. And without wanting to sound like a total cliche, it's a real experience. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see where all the quotes come from. Definitely. You will suddenly understand a lot of references that you did not get otherwise. Also, apparently there's like a three and a half minute pop song that tries to tell the entire story of the seventh seal. Um, so if you're feeling really, you know, really lazy, you can, uh, you can just listen to that. <laughs> but you should just watch the film. Thank you so much. And we will be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter and I'm at Tiny Red Book. And that's probably about it. And we will see you next week to talk about Black Death, which is a very different beast. <laughs> Anybody seen a night pass this way? I saw him playing chess with death yesterday His crusade was a search for God and they say It's been a long way to carry on Anybody here of plague in this town the town I've left behind was burned to the ground.